Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're speaking to clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst Danielle Canafo, about her new book with co-author Rocco Lobasco entitled The Age of Perversion, Desire and Technology in Psychoanalysis and Culture, published in 2017 by Routledge. I'm really excited to talk about her book because not only does it expand our ideas about perversion and how it can manifest beyond the sexual arena, but because I think it captures something essential about what it means to be human in an increasingly non-human world. So I want to get right to it. Um, but first, let me tell you about my guest. Danielle Knafo is a professor in the clinical psychology doctoral program at Long Island University and faculty member and supervisor in New York University's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She's lectured internationally and published extensively, including her prior book, Dancing with the Unconscious, published in 2012, also by Routledge. And she will be speaking about her work at the upcoming annual spring meeting of the Division of Psychoanalysis, that's Division 39, of the American Psychological Association, which is being held here in New York, April 26th through the 30th. If you haven't heard her speak before, you should definitely register and not miss her. But for now, I'm eager to introduce my guest, Danielle. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Hi. So let's let's start with some basics about perversion. What is it? What is perversion? That's the question, isn't it? Well, you know, perversion is the way we define it in our book. Perversion is related to the desire to break through boundaries, to transcend limits. And so it has that basic foundation. And that's why it's universal as Freud himself believed, um, how, do, how does one 
it, it, it's a restlessness and what we call a dissatisfaction or an impudent impulse. It's a railing against the way things are. It challenges mainstream thinking or, or behaving. And that's why it can be both positive and negative. We don't judge perversion. I know that perversion, the term perversion, the concept perversion is often uh, considered from a moral perspective. But in our book, we don't judge it because we believe that artists uh, wish to transcend and, and go against uh, boundaries and, and uh, you know, we always talk about artists thinking outside of the box, right? What is the box? The box is mainstream thinking. So uh, technology is, is also a way of railing against the way things are. And perversion, the way we define it, is a universal human characteristic at the core of the human plight and and that that has to do with this this desire to to twist away from the norm to to transgress to to move away um from from limitation to tra- transcend limitations but why is perversion so often associated with sex and is that a misunderstanding of what perversion really is well that's a good question in psychoanalysis, perversion has most often been associated with sex, with sexual perversion. I don't think it's a misunderstanding. It's just a limitation of the understanding of the concept. Um, because, and, and what we try to do in this book is to expand our understanding of the concept of perversion to uh, include social perversion, not just sexual or individual perversion, but social perversion. And uh, that's why we call it the age of perversion. And uh, in particular, we are focusing on the um, uh, on the the sea change that has come upon our our society because of technological advances. And um, how these, the the technology and how it's taking over our lives, is um, is uh, creating a, a, an increasingly perverse society. And why do I say that? Because if we think of the definition of perversion as dehumanizing a human being and humanizing an object as we have in fetishism, then just think of what technology is doing to us. We are increasingly uh, becoming more comfortable with our devices, with our machines, with our inanimate objects, and we are distancing ourselves through virtual realities, through the Internet, from face-to-face contact, from a human-to-human relationship. And so that's why we are calling this the age of perversion. So I imagine that many of our listeners, half of them might be with us right now and half of them might still be resisting this concept. So can you give us an example of everyday perversion, something that the average person could relate to? Everyday perversion. <laughs> like a way, a way that we all 
engage in some form of perversion without realizing that it's perversion in the way that you're talking about it. Well, we all, as we talk about it in this book, we all deny the ultimate limitation, which is our mortality. That's what helps us to function on a day-to-day basis. In order to deny that, we have to create illusions of some sort. And perversion is always related to illusion. There's a disavowal of some aspect of reality on one side and an illusion and the creation of an illusion on another side, right? So it began with Freud, the disavowal of the threat of castration, the disavowal of the difference between the sexes he felt was traumatic for the boy. And therefore, the boy would create the illusion that the female had a penis, right? The phallic mother or the phallic woman. So the disavowal of a certain reality alongside the creation of an illusion of another reality, right? And and the perverse script is always connected to that illusion, right? It's a magic of sort of sorts. So when we think about what it means to be a pervert, you're offering us an, a new definition of that, one that is not about doing something that society would deem sick or, or gross or weird, but rather being someone, and it's, it's, it's all of us, who goes against the grain, who feels the need to transgress something um, and, and with some kind of urgency. Am I, am I getting it? Well, you know, yes, you're getting it. But there is the other aspect of what we do in this book is we talk about the spectrum perversion from benign to malignant, right, from from uh, uh, generative to destructive. So some perversion, some twisting away from the norm will is generative is that's how we we become creative by by becoming original and not thinking about what everybody else is thinking or doing. But but we still include the more malignant behaviors within this perverse spectrum. So some twisting against the norms or or break transgressing against laws even will be on the more malignant mm-hmm. spectrum of perversion. So you have a person like Jeffrey Dahmer, right, who definitely is breaking laws, is, is uh, killing people, is sodomizing people, is cannibalizing people, you know, all of the, the most extreme perversions that overlap with psychopathy as well. But on the generative side, you have the more, ge- the more creative perversions, many, many uh, uh, movements of civil disobedience or even the feminist movement or the gay revolution are on the, the more uh, generative side of perversion. It was go- they're going against the mainstream. They're considered different perverts during a certain time. But perversions change with time. They change with culture. They go hand in hand mm-hmm. with the norm. So whatever is the norm, that's why perversions change. What we consider perversion changes as the norms change. 
perversions, norms and perversions define each other in a way. They define each other. You don't have one without the other. Exactly. I, I, one of, one of the things that got, one one of the portals for me into this new way of thinking about perversion, one of the things that really kind of hit me between the eyes was the way you talk about humans, simultaneous tendencies to humanize objects and also dehumanize people. And I think you wanted to read an excerpt from your book about this. And if you still want to, I would love for you to do that and, and talk to us about what you're trying to say. So uh, I'm reading from page 82 in the book, and uh, it's a little summary paragraph. It says, we have argued that the dual tendencies to humanize and dehumanize are universal and are rooted in human evolution and psychology. The creation of machines, dolls, and robots that promise companionship, sex, and even love demonstrate how we are taking charge of our own evolution. These new developments reveal the powerful role fantasy plays in our relationships and raises the question of how much love and sex whether with a human, a doll, or a machine, are one-sided products of our own imaginations. Understanding our relationship to technology exposes and amplifies the limitations of human connection. Nonetheless, the need for connection is a constant, even if the way we express intimacy changes over time. Life is a short and often frightening journey and it is always a good thing to have a hand to hold, whether that hand is human or made of plastic, silicone, or even metal. As early as 1951, Marshall McClellan imagined the merging of sex and technology in his prescient book, The Mechanical Bride, Folklore of Industrial Man. And now that future is near. Wow. Talk to us about that excerpt. Well, this excerpt comes just uh, at the end of a chapter where I'm talking about a case that I had that I saw who, of a man who lived with a doll and loved this doll. And in fact, that case is what got me started on this whole topic. <laughs> <laughs> to show you how one one person can change change you so much, I got so intrigued by the way that this man very very deep human f emotions for an inanimate object, this doll, a, a high end sex doll. But obviously, he wasn't just using this doll for sex. He actually developed a relationship that, in his mind was a mutual relation. So not only did he project his love onto this doll and, and create a backstory for the doll and, and use his fantasy to disavow the reality that she is a doll uh, and create an alternative reality that, that, she's, that they have a human relationship. And so... Uh, this just fascinated me, and I felt that I needed to know 
much more about it. And that's when I began to delve into these uh, relationships with, with dolls because I saw really the doll as, as uh, the beginning of move, um, a technological movement that we are all making in our societies from doll to robot, right? Or from, from smartphone to doll to robot. Mm. Um, and, and what's happening? They're even putting artificial intelligence in these dolls now. In other words, they are converting them into robots. And so, so that's what, what got me going on this topic of technology and how it's changing our identities, what it means to be human, as people become more like their machines, as their machines become more like them, and as there's a, a rapprochement between humans and their machines. And many people in artificial intelligence are predicting that there will soon not only be a rapprochement, that they will, there will be a union between humans and machines. So I got very good in this, particularly in relationships and how our relationships are changing, our identities and our relationships are changing as a function of advanced technology. So we're definitely going to get into the implications for all of society about um, that can be derived from this one story. But I, I want to go back to this guy, and I think you're talking about the person you call Jack, correct? How did he end up in that situation? I mean, how did he end up – what's his story? How did he end up choosing to form a relationship with, with a doll? Well, that was my question. Why would a man prefer a doll over a human? Um, and what I found out from him, because I got to know him very well, he, he was my, my, my patient, um, was that he had, he had had relationships with women, uh, he had been married twice, but both times, uh, both marriages were uh, not successful, and he felt uh, extremely rejected and uh, inadequate as a result of these relationships. And this actually um, uh, mirrored his relationship with his mother, who looked down on him and and. Uh, um, you know, uh, looked down on his father as well and compared him to his father as a failed man, uh, as it were. And so here is a man who had had multiple disappointments um, and, and hurt and trauma uh, with women, with the women in his life, the major uh, women relationships with women in his life. And um, he didn't want to be hurt anymore. And so he was searching the web one day, and he came across a man's blog who was talking about his life with a doll and how happy he was with this doll and how uh, self-sufficient he was with this doll and how beautiful the doll was. And Jack, my patient, became very intrigued by this and went to the website that um, this man had had spoken about, and he saw the dolls that he was talking about. And these dolls really are very beautiful. And uh, he decided on the spot that he was going to purchase one of these dolls and and no longer 
need to rely on a human to make him happy and or, or no longer be with a human who was going to make him sad. Uh, and that was the beginning of how he developed this intimate relationship with the doll and his feelings for this doll were quite profound, um, uh, amazingly so. And that's one of the things that fascinated me, how one not only could fall in love with a doll, but how one could feel loved by a doll. The, the latter fascinated me more. And how did you come to understand the way that the latter works? I mean, psychologically, psychoanalytically speaking, how does one... How does it work such that one can end up feeling loved by a doll? It, it, that is the question. When I asked Jack, I asked Jack that very question one time, and he told me uh, he was very intelligent and perceptive, and he said, "Listen, uh, people believe in things that they don't see all the time. People believe in God." People believe in Santa Claus. He says, well, I believe in this doll and I can see her, right? Um, so he was really saying that, the, and, and you see the powers of projection and uh, in, in these people who, who develop uh, strong relationships with dolls, that they project a lot of needs and fantasies onto these dolls and even aspects of themselves that they want to see onto these dolls. Um, so for example, um, uh, many of the men will spend enormous amounts of time uh, choosing clothing and pigs <clears throat> and all these things that, that are to take care of the dolls. But they're, I, I believe that they're also expressing a, a feminine side of themselves through these dolls. And Dave Cat, another man who lives with three dolls, who, who I write about in the book, uh, admitted, acknowledged this uh, to me. I also use Winnicott's theory of the transitional object uh, uh, when talking about... Uh, talking about these men who live with dolls and love dolls, that there's, they live in this transitional space where, where they walk a fine line between reality and, uh, and imagination. And they know that. On one level, they know that they're living with a doll. They can take, a, take the doll apart and show me the mechanics or talk about the mechanics of the dolls. Um, I've since interviewed about 15 of these men who live with dolls. So, And that I, I just I, want to emphasize that's such an important piece for people to understand that these, these men are not psychotic. They're not living in some kind of chronic delusion. They know it's a doll. They know it's made of plastic or silicone. Um, and, the, and it's still serving this important function for them. Yes. They know that they're living with a doll. They are not psychotic. Um, and, and I've interviewed quite a few of them. They are not psychotic. They know these are dolls. But, but on the other hand, when they're talking about the dolls, 
you get the sense that they lose that knowledge. Mm. Because they talk about the dolls uh, as if they have uh, a personality, pers- personal agency. Uh, one of my, uh, one of the men um, made a backstory of the doll, uh, one of his dolls that she's Japanese, and he learned Japanese to be able to speak with them. Okay, so yes, he knows she's a doll, but to study Japanese to speak with with the doll. You have to fool yourself to some extent uh, about the rea- the uh, the reality of this object. So that's a walking fine line between reality and imagination. You, you know, as I was reading your book, I'll sh- I'll share an anecdote that hopefully will help my listeners relate to what you're talking about. Um, as I was. In the course of reading your book, I had bought a new side table for my office because what I had had for the longest time there was this little IKEA side table that for years I'd been meaning to replace. It looked fine, but I, I, I felt I felt I needed to upgrade, and I assembled the new side table and I removed the IKEA table. And I had to go somewhere; I had to be somewhere by a certain time. So when I was done, I just kind of grabbed the cheap IKEA table and took it downstairs to the basement where the trash is, and I left. And I got to tell you. The next day, it occurred to me, oh, wait a minute. I've had that side table for like seven years or eight years since I was a postdoc at, you know, NYU. And I felt a little bad. I had this uh-huh. moment I had this moment where I thought, oh, no, I left that side table all by himself in the, in the basement. I didn't even say goodbye. And, and I thought, what's wrong with me? I'm crazy. And, and that's the moment I thought of your book. And I realized, you know, we all have a little bit of this. In us, in you know, projection usually gets a bad rap, but that projection is what brings, has the power to bring something to life. And it sounds like these men similarly, they they bring these dolls to life. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and what you're describing is a perfect example of how we humanize objects, how we animate. It's a very human tendency to animate we do it all you have to do is watch children how they animate their 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 toys their objects their their blankets their you know anything and we do what you're describing is a sense of loss a sadness a a separation from this table that meant something to you you know there are there are experiments um that that have been uh, conducted where people just see a, a stick moving a stick and somebody is moving it from another room and they attribute all kinds of human attributes to this stick it has a will it has agency it has you know just by seeing a stick move so we have these tendencies to, to i think they're inborn in us and 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 to humanize objects, but we also have tendencies to dehumanize people, and that's why you know we can kill, we can uh, objectify, we can you know we have both of these tendencies, and both of these tendencies are maximized with technology. In the case of Dave Cat, and and I think it's worth noting that you know Jack was ambivalent about his relationship with his doll and wanted to work through it in order to have 
relationships with humans, whereas Dave, Dave Cat, as as per your your book, has no such interest and is perfectly happy. So I'm thinking about what you said regarding transcendence that we're trying we're trying to transcend limitations. So what what limitation is Dave Cat trying to transcend? Mm. Yes, Dave Cat is different from Jack. Jack came to treatment, and he wanted to change. Even though he was attached to this this doll, he felt defective because of that, and he came to me to help him develop, go back to the human relational sphere. But Dave Cat is different. Dave Cat, first of all, Dave Cat from early life had a preference for objects. And just like many children do, but it was more pronounced in him. He was always drawn to inanimate objects. So there was something very, very strong in him from early on. And he he never uh, really had uh, an ongoing, long-standing relationship with uh, with a woman. And so the dolls for him have been his primary significant others in his life and um he he owns three dolls and one of them is his wife one of them is his mistress and uh one of them was his roommate but now he exchanged her with a new one so he has a whole family dynamic going on with these dolls i think he's trying to transcend his own limitations many things I think he's trying to transcend his own limitations with human relationships to a, to be able to at least have a facsimile of these kinds of relationships. Um, I think he's trying to transcend his mortality, ultimately, um, by being with these dolls that don't age and that, that, that remain the same and don't demand of one what what a human being would demand in a relationship. When we're in a relationship human to human, we change the other person. They change us. We have to compromise. We have to, you know, take into account somebody else's needs. All of these things are are unnecessary when you live with a doll, right? The doll is just compliant really a, a part of you because you are projecting her needs, her story, her personality. And so you can make of her whatever you want. There's no stress. When I asked Dave cat, he's been married to one of his dolls almost 20 years. So wow. I asked, asked him what, what he attributes the, the longevity of this relationship to. And he said, we never argue. <laughs> Before going to bed. Mm. Well, so so he be- so he transcends also his vulnerability to to pain to hurt. Yes, all vulnerability. He said she will not cheat on me. She will not leave me. She will not. So so he he transcends the uncertainty of life and of love. When we fall in love, we don't know 
what's going to happen, really. We don't know that that person's going to be there for us. We don't know that they're going to love us back. We don't know that even if they love us back, that that love will last. All of these uncertainties he dispels with, with the doll. And he says to me, said to me, I am not a gambler. Wow. So so he's sort of taken himself out of the universal game where people get take risks and um, maybe feel joy, maybe feel pain. He sort of wrestled himself out of out of that game and, and created a world for himself where he's 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 not vulnerable to those things. Exactly. And he will say as much. He yeah. will say as much. Yeah. You you make an important point in the book too about gender differences when it comes to dolls and, and devote a whole chapter to the way that women use dolls because it's very different than the way, generally speaking, than men do. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, I was surprised to find out how few women live with and love dolls. That this is primarily a male uh, thing with the sex dolls. But then I discovered that women do live with dolls, but not sex dolls, not love dolls. They live with baby dolls. There are these also silicone, very realistic. All of these dolls that I'm talking about are hyper-realistic. There are very, very realistic dolls. Uh, and expensive. Very. That look like real babies. And some of them, even their chests go up and down, they suck, they coo, you know, they, they, they're warm uh, to the touch, they have heft, they have um, uh, natural hair. Each hair is put in one hair at a time. They look very, very natural. They have veins and capillaries and freckles and, you know, the, the skin uh, texture is just amazingly realistic so many of the 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 women who are attracted to dolls uh are attracted to these baby dolls and so what fascinated me here with the gender differences was with all of the changes in our society all the gender fluidity we talk about and the change in gender norms when it comes to dolls people are very traditional Mm. the men want the sex dolls the women want the baby dolls and and why do the women want these baby dolls well there are different reasons what i found was and i've interviewed quite a few women who live with these dolls too and some of them collect them some of the women have lost children some of them uh for some of them they couldn't have children some of them, that they had children, but they've grown up and, and moved away. And the women miss that early stage of having a baby. And uh, some of them just love babies and want that experience, right? Some of them don't want children of their own because it's too much of a mess and too much uh, responsibility. Uh, kind of like what we were saying about Dave Cat. And so they want this, they'll have, a, a, you know, something that approximates having a child. And so they have these babies. They And these babies look so realistic. 
Many of the women get together, they have baby showers, they have birthday parties, they take them out. It's easier to take these baby dolls out than the sex dolls. Because uh, the baby dolls, they put in a little carriage, they take them out. You know, it's not, people don't look askance at a woman who's, who's uh, walking with a carriage. But they will to a man who's uh, pushing a wheelchair. Because these dolls, the, 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 the adult dolls are very heavy. They weigh 80 to 100 pounds. And and they don't so yet they, walk on their own, but maybe one day. Dave Cat is waiting uh, anxiously for them to be able to walk, but they don't yet walk. But they're getting very close to that, actually. And and how do you? I mean, how do you feel about this? You're you're a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. Do you ever do you ever wonder whether this type of behavior, these types of attachments to dolls, if it's healthy? Do you even think in those terms? You know, <laughs> that's a good question. I have an enormous tolerance for difference, and I always have. And um, so uh, maybe it's the part of me, I don't know, or the fact that I'm, I'm an immigrant, and so I've, I've always felt different in some way. And so uh, I... I uh, I can see both sides. Let's put it that way. I can see the side. I think, uh, you know, in the beginning, I was much more judgmental. When Jack came to me initially and told me about his life with a doll, my feminist sensibilities uh, reacted. And and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, this is, uh, you know, typical male objectifying females. Mm. And this is what. So, you know, a female that they can control and, uh, you know, just be beautiful and have sex with me whenever I want. And uh, so, I, you know, those were my initial reactions. And I had to uh, work with myself to, to get to know him and see where he was coming from. And what, the more I got to know him and his vulnerabilities and his pains and his trauma, uh, that judgment kind of disappeared. And I was able to see him as just somebody uh, seeking to save himself and the, to find happiness in, in, in the way that he could without too much pain. I mean, perhaps my question is really a, a, an unfair question for me to ask because I think that one of the main premises of your book is that we all have a little bit of Dave Cat in all of us to the extent that he, he has found a very unconventional way of dealing with a very universal human need. Absolutely. When I talk about this, uh, this phenomenon and people see it as very other, right? I always bring it back to, well, how much do you think we project onto our loved ones? Who's to say, you know, we don't objectify the people we're with. We don't project, fantasize about what, what we want from someone. How many of us date people and after a few months we think to ourselves, who was that person? Mm. What? I made that up. 
I made up in my mind who I was dating. And then I discovered who the real person was. We all have this tendency to project, to fantasize. What transference is based on this? Mm. Mm. Transference is, you know, we, we rely on this in, in psychoanal- psychoanalysis, on this tendency that people have to transfer their feelings uh, onto other objects human or otherwise. So I, I'm glad you're saying this because I indeed believe that this is a tendency that we all have. But that in these in, in these people, it's taken to an, uh, a greater extent. And, and social media, as, as you talk about in the book, is expanding our capacity to do this. And I mean, we are the creators of social media, so we, we are doing this to ourselves. But Facebook, Instagram, and Dating apps like like Grinder and and Tinder, it, it I think that they they allow us and they in fact thrive on the fact that we have this tendency to project onto each other and not always be willing to really see each other. Um, would would you agree with that? Yes, and to objectify the other. Absolutely, but. Then what lies ahead for us in this domain? And when we when we when we think about the way that everyday people that we all use technology, where where are we headed, and what are some of the dangers that we face? And do you do you think that there's a way that we can guard against um, some of the darker possibilities that await us? Yes. Yeah. Well, that is the question, uh, and that's the question that we take up in this book. Uh, because technology is happening so fast, so rapidly, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, you, can't, you can, almost can't keep up. People have to change their computers and their phones much more frequently because there's new technology and new technology, new apps and new uh, social media. And so uh, um, where are we going? Well, the man who wrote the preface to our book, David Levy, is an artificial intelligence expert and a roboticist. And he uh, wrote a book himself called Love and Sex with Robot. And um, he is predicting that within 40 years, we're going to be marrying robots. And he's not alone in thinking this. So um, as you saw, Dave Cat married one of his dolls. So it shouldn't be too... Extreme, but he's predicting that more and more people are going to go in this direction. It's like the movie Her. Like the movie Her, where a man, Joaquin Phoenix, falls in love with his operating system. Mm. And in Japan, Japan is is very technologically advanced, uh, somewhat more than we are even. And people are very, very comfortable with technology there. And so much so that a third of Japan's youth today has foregone intimate relationships. And uh, they are either just celibate or they, they prefer relationships with technology. And there's a Japanese game where they have this little, little childlike figure. And one man there has married this figure, and many of them become enamored by this figure. So it's not even a doll that you can hug and, and uh, you know, uh, cuddle up to. 
This is a figure on a screen, right, that people are falling in love with and marrying. Should should we be trying to stop this? Should we be trying to stop this? Well, I don't think we can stop this because it's on a roll. And and I don't think we have uh, the power to stop this. But I do think that we sh- we need to try to ask ourselves what is what is becoming of the human and what are we sacrificing by giving ourselves over more and more to technology what what of of our human characteristics what is going to be what is it going to mean to be human in several years what is a, a good life having a good life going to mean what is having a relationship going to mean right mm-hmm. are we just increasingly go for things that we can control and that we can program or you know uh, uh, look google google has a whole staff that's trying to solve the problem of death i mean how much more of a mortality uh project there they don't want technology doesn't want to leave anything to chance nothing well that would be the ultimate perversion wouldn't it if if we succeeded in transcending the one thing that we always thought we could not exactly exactly so i think that what we we need to do is to um, try very hard, and I think we do have to try because it's very easy to become addicted to our devices and to become uh, enamored by our devices and to to start seeing our devices as part of ourselves. And we have, I think, we have to work to resist that sometimes and put away our devices and and talk to people i see i'm a professor i see how hard it is for my students to go through an entire class without checking their email or Mm. texting you know this wasn't the case years ago but it's becoming more and more that and and uh you know uh, what what has happened to us how can we, you know, there are now apps that control our use of these devices just to help us out mm. uh, because we can't do it ourselves. There, there are people <laughs> in South Korea, they call it electronic heroin, um, who, who get so addicted to being on the Internet, playing video games, for example, that they forget. And they, some of them actually starve themselves and die. Wow. So it has very serious implications. Um, Technology is amazing. It's wonderful. What what we can do today, self-driving cars, you know, uh, what what our robotics are, are able to do today is just amazing. But we have to be very careful of how much of our humanity we are we sacrifice as we give ourselves over. Uh, increasingly to that very technology. Danielle, I think this has been one of the most eye-opening books that I've read in a while, and I, I would love to talk to you more about it, but we're running out of time. And before we go, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're going to be speaking soon at the upcoming spring meeting of the Division of Psychoanalysis of the American Psychological Association. Do you mind telling us what people can expect if they go to see you speak? Okay. Um, well, 
Uh, I'm going to have another interview there. It's going to be on the Thursday morning at 11. Uh, Deborah Lupnitz, uh, who wrote Schopenhauer's Porcupine, is going to be interviewing me uh, at the Division 39 meeting. And uh, um, she, she too, has found uh, the book very fascinating and disturbing. You know, some people find uh, what we're about very disturbing, and and some of it is. Uh, But it's a kind of disturbing that we need to know about. And especially one of the things we didn't touch on in this interview is is how it's going to affect therapy. And, and, uh, you know, because more and more people are even, you know, reaching to the Internet for therapy. And will robots conduct therapy? So there are a lot of... A lot more that uh, that we'll be discussing at Division Thirty Nine. You're you're right. Uh, it, this definitely we are definitely in the mix, and we'll have to make choices about where we fall when when technology starts. I guess you could say encroaching into our space. You might say. Um, I think it's going to be a great interview. So for anyone who wants to catch Danielle being interviewed in person, go to division39.org to register for the conference. Do you mind telling us what else you're working on, what you're working on next? I'm working on a book. I'm also co-writing a book now on um, creativity and addiction. It's interesting. Perversion kind of overlaps with addiction. A lot of people, as I just said, become addicted to their technology. So it's called uh, Sex, Drugs, and Creativity, mm-hmm. The Magic Solution. That sounds exciting. Um, I can't wait to hear about it. I hope you'll consider coming on our show again once, once the book comes out. Well, it's, it's going to be up by Routledge also. Awesome, Hopefully. awesome. Um, well, Danielle, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It really was a blast uh, reading your book and getting to talk to you about it. So, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank all you. Right, all right, take care. That was my interview with Daniel Knafo, co-author of the book, along with Rocco Labasco, entitled The Age of Perversion, Desire and Technology in Psychoanalysis and Culture, published in 2017 by Routledge. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology. Don't forget to send me your comments and requests by going to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on Contact. And there you can also find links to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, where I post links to my latest episodes, as well as the latest ideas and news in psychology. Until next time, have a great week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.